Blog Talk Radio. Hello, welcome to Law Librarian Conversations on Blog Talk Radio, the podcast about all things law library, legal bibliography, and the law library profession. Thanks for joining us. All right, well, I guess today our random uh, intro was the blues intro. I hope everybody's uh, properly revved up and excited. Uh, I sure am. Um, welcome to another episode of Law Librarian Conversations, a podcast about everything law library and legal bibliography and beyond. And um, I'm uh, your host, uh, Richard Leiter. Um, I'm broadcasting from the heart of the heartland. Lincoln, Nebraska, the mighty Schmid Law Library. I can't help myself. I've got to say stupid things like that. It makes me feel important, I guess. And, and anyway, I'm here joined um, in studio here with uh, Mandy Lee, uh, reference librarian here at the Schmid Law Library. And I, sh- I guess I should say that we're um, the University of uh, Nebraska uh, College of Law. Um, I'm joined today by an impressive uh, panel, a couple of whom will be joining us later, but right now on the call we have Roger Skalbeck from University of Richmond, my co-host, longtime uh, collaborator in all this. Hi, Roger. Hey, hey, can, hey how are you all doing? Good afternoon. Good. Glad to be here. And um, <clears throat> we also have um, a regular panelist, Ken Hirsch. Uh, from Hello, Cincinnati. Everyone. That's right. Hello again. Our um, TV star. Um, and uh, it, it, wait, TV star, our, um, uh, what do you call it? Our um, karaoke star, leader in many ways. Ken, welcome. And Glad. Um, Emily, we also have today um, Emily Feltron, our AALL's um, uh, uh, government affairs representative of VIP. And hey, everyone. you've been on hey, once everyone. before, haven't you, Emily? Yeah, a couple of times yeah, you've uh, kindly right. invited me to join everybody, so I'm glad to be here again. Yeah. Good. And then we have another VIP, um, <clears throat> Frank Hodak. Um, Director Emeritus and Professor at Southern Illinois University. Hi, Frank. Hey, Rich. How are you doing? Hey, Rich. How are you doing? Good. And um, so we've got a couple of special uh, things that we're going to be doing today. Um, We've got our main event that we'll be discussing uh, very shortly, the uh, state of state laws, who owns the law, uh, copyright uh, surrounding, um, you know, publication of state primary laws and things like that, which Roger is going to lead our uh, discussion um, of at about about 20 minutes, 25 minutes. Um, before we get to that, um, we um, and I just realized I should probably turn off notifications on my computer, otherwise I'm going to be getting. There we go. Do not disturb. Okay. Sorry about that, folks. Um, This is a professional operation. Um, (laughs) Before we get started, 
um, wanted, we're trying to introduce, and we'd like to, to have a regular um, contribution from Frank, who is, uh, as many of you know, is uh, um, uh, probably the only law library uh, historian, uh, at least the only one that I know of, um, almost full-time these days and a baseball fan. And so I've invited Frank to join us um, when he can to give us a little ditty from AAL or Law Library History. And um, so he's put something together for us. Welcome, Frank. Thank you, Rich. I appreciate it. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here and to make a, a small, and I'll let other people judge how small, a contribution to today's show. So, uh, if there was ever a time to celebrate Chicago's place in the law library and baseball universes, it is 2016. In law libraries, ALL held its 109th annual meeting in Chicago, and both the president and a new recipient of the Gallagher Distinguished Service Award hailed from the Windy City. And in baseball, well, here's what a diehard White Sox fan tweeted at 1.03 a.m. on November 3, 2016, quote, it happened at Cubs win World Series. That's change even this South Sider can believe in. Want to come to the White House before I leave? You can guess who the author of that tweet was. Given my research yeah. and writing interests, in, uh, yeah, I'm letting people guess right now. I'll pause. Okay, you got it, President Barack Obama. Given my research and writing interest in both law libraries and baseball, it's not surprising that Rich's invitation to present a law library history segment on today's podcast led to an essay that I have titled, quote, Holy Cow! A Parallel History of Law Librarians and the Chicago Cubs. Now, before getting started, I want to note that Rich enthusiastically accepted my proposal, so if you hate this segment, blame him, not me. Anyway... <laughs> Before beginning, I do have one caveat. I've only got a few minutes, and it's impossible to do justice to either the Cubs or all those who have contributed to the Chicago Law Library scene in that amount of time. So I'm only going to offer a few highlights of both, and I apologize in advance for all the people and events that I will leave out. With that proviso in mind, and with apologies to the late, great Harry Carey for stealing his catchphrase, I'm now going to put on my Cubs hat uh, think uh, about the baseball team in the state of Illinois uh, and offer, holy cow, a parallel history of law librarians and Chicago Cubs. We began in wow. 1906, 1906, a long time ago, when 10 law librarians responded to an invitation from A.J. Small, the law and legislative reference librarian of the Iowa State Library, by meeting on July 2nd during the American Library Association's annual conference in Narragansett Pier, Rhode Island, to formally establish an organization they first called the Librarians Association, but quickly changed to the American Association of Law Libraries. 25 individuals were charter or founding members of ALL, including three from Chicago, Frederick B. Crossley of Northwestern University Law School Library, William H. Holden of the Chicago Law Institute, and most notably, Frederick Schenck of the University of Chicago Law Library, someone we will see again. On the day that Small and these others were forming ALL in Rhode Island, the Chicago Cubs were in first place in the eight-team National League, two and a half games ahead of the Pittsburgh Pirates. Featuring the famous double-play combination, Tinker to Evers to Chance, the Cubs won 116 games in 1906 and lost only 36 
a winning percentage of 763. That is still, still today, the best ever in modern Major League history. Riding high, the Cubs were heavily favored over the Chicago White Sox in the 1906 World Series. But they suffered a 4-2 defeat to a team dubbed the Hitless Wonders in what is considered one of the greatest upsets in series history. Still the only World Series between the two Chicago teams, it served as a portent of things to come. Two years later, in December 1908, ALL published the first issue of the Law Library Journal. ALL charter member Frederick Schenck of Chicago was the managing editor. An unsigned editorial in the first issue, almost certainly written by Schenck, declared, quote, there will appear in each issue at least one original leading article on a subject of a special interest to law librarians, bibliographies of special legal subjects, and a list of new textbooks, statutes, and digests published during the quarter. On Wednesday, October 14, 1908, two months before the publication of the inaugural issue of the Law Library Journal, the Chicago Cubs defeated the Detroit Tigers 2-0 to, to secure its second consecutive World Series victory. Imagine that, four games to one. The team's future appeared rosy, but although the Cubs would compete in eight more World Series, it would be more than a century, 108 years to be precise, before the team's fans could again celebrate another series triumph. Let's jump ahead 20 years now to 1928. Frederick Schenck became the first ALL president from Chicago, serving two terms from 1928 to 1930, the stalwart of the early law library community. He also served on the ALL executive board and as vice president, had a 50-year career in libraries, which only ended at his death in 1948. In 2010, a special selection committee made Schenck an inaugural inductee into the AALL Hall of Fame as a pioneer. The Cubs were a force in the National League during the two years Shank served as president, featuring four future members of the Baseball Hall of Fame, manager Joe McCarthy and players Rogers Hornsby, Gabby Hartnett, and Kiki Kyler. The Cubs finished in third place in 1928 and then captured the National League pennant in 1929. Unfortunately, they lost the World Series to Connie Mack's Philadelphia Athletics, their third loss in the Fall Classic since that long-ago 1908 victory. Such defeats had already become the norm. We're going to take another 20-year leap now to February 20th, 1947, when 17 librarians representing 10 law school, bar association, court, and law firm libraries met at the Chicago Bar Association and planned the creation of an organization to be called the Chicago Association of Law Libraries. A month later, on March 20th, the organization was formally, esta formally established with former ALL president William Rolfe, now at Northwestern University Law Library, elected as Call's first president. Three months later, during ALL's 40th annual meeting in Santa Fe, New Mexico, the membership approved Call as the association's third chapter following the Southeastern and Washington, D.C. groups. In 1947, the year Call was formed, the Cubs finished in sixth place, 25 games behind the pennant-winning Brooklyn Dodgers, who were led by barrier-breaking Jackie Robinson. Quite a come-down for a team that just two years earlier had faced the Detroit Tigers in the 1945 World Series, although the Cubs lost in that series in what would be their final series appearance for 71 years. 
in retrospect, the 1947 club's biggest, quote, claim to fame might have been that its roster featured two players who were shot by women in separate off-field incidents that many say inspired Bernard Malamud's novel, The Natural. Veteran shortstop Billy Jurgis was shot by a spurned lover, Violet Popovich, in 1932. And in 1949, Ruth Ann Steinhagen, a mentally unbalanced 19-year-old, lured handsome first baseman Eddie Waitkus to Chicago's Edgewater Beach Hotel and then shot him in the chest with a 22 caliber rifle. Thankfully, both players somehow recovered and resumed their playing careers. But still, only the Cubs. Let's move now to June 1964, when the ALL Executive Board finally approved the creation of a permanent headquarters for the association to be located in Chicago and staffed on a paid full-time basis. Former ALL treasurer William D. Murphy of Kirkland and Ellis, Ellis pardon me, in Chicago, known to many as Mr. AALL, served as co-chair of a fund drive to raise $220,000 for the headquarters. Within the year, AALL moved into the historic Monadnock building at 53 West Jackson Boulevard in the Chicago Loop. It remained there for 45 years until moving to a new location just a few blocks away in spring 2009. While ALL was busy establishing a headquarters, the Cubs of 1964 finished eighth in the 10-team National League, 17 games behind their bitter rivals, the St. Louis Cardinals. This in spite of a roster that featured four future Hall of Famers, Ernie Banks, Mr. Cub, Lou Brock, Ron Santo, and Billy Williams. Even worse, the team only attracted 751,000 to its home games, an average of barely over 9,000 fans per game. Today, celebrated as the friendly confines and frequently sold out, Wrigley Field in 1964 was an anathema to Cubs fans tired of losing. Little did they know that at 17 years, their pennant drought had only just begun. Let's make a quick stop in 1969 when ALL made the wise decision to lure Antoinette Babe Russo away from her position with a local publisher in Chicago to serve as ALL's administrative secretary, its sole, pay, its sole paid position, uh, staff position at the time. She served in that capacity for 20 years until her retirement in 1989. At her passing in 1994, Bob Baring, a uh, past president of AALL, wrote, quote, Ms. Russo held us together with bailing wire and library paste. She was devoted to the membership and always looking out for our best interests. She was a person who was part of our past and who ushered us toward our future with grace and style, end quote. Of the ill-fated Cubs in 1969, the team won 92 games and led the National League East for 155 days. But in a September swoon, they lost 17 out of 25 games and finished eighth behind the Miracle Mets. Some forever blamed a black cat that crossed Ron Santo's path during a game at Shea Stadium. But more knowledgeable analysts criticized manager Leo DeRocher for overworking his players, particularly the pitching staff. Two decades later, in July 1987, Bill Murphy was finally retired, but he still served as chair of the Local Arrangements Committee, which welcomed 2,400 ALL members to Chicago's Hyatt Regency Hotel for the association's 80th annual meeting. 
In keeping with President Lolly Gasway's theme of, quote, we the people, which honored the bicentennial of the U.S. Constitution, members of the executive board attended the closing banquet, no longer with us, dressed in colonial costumes. The evening's highlight, however, was a, quote, report on law libraries from Father Guido Sarducci, portrayed by comedian Don Novello the fictional chain-smoking priest from Saturday Night Live who supposedly worked as a gossip columnist and rock critic for a newspaper called the Vatican Inquirer. On the other side, although they flirted with the first division early in the season, by the time ALL convened its meeting in Chicago, the Cubs were already in free fall, and they ended the season dead last in the National League East Division. On the bright side, Cub outfielder Andre Dawson had a great year slugging a league-leading home runs, uh, 49 home runs and 137 RBIs and winning the National League MVP award, the first player in history to win the award while playing for a last-place team. As an aside, many think the answer to this trivia question is Ernie Banks. But when Mr. Cub won his back-to-back MVP awards in 58 and 59, the team only finished in fifth place those years. Okay, now we're heading toward the finish line, July 22, 2015, at the conclusion of ALL's 108th annual meeting in Philadelphia. Keith Ann Stiverson, director of the IIT Chicago Kent College of Law Library, became the fifth ALL president from Chicago. Her predecessors were Frederick Shank, who we talked about, William S. Johnston of the Chicago Law Institute in 1944-45, the ubiquitous Bill Murphy, 1967 and 68, and more recently, Jean Wenger of the Cook County Law Library in 2013-14. In 2015, the Cubs won 97 games but still finished in third place in the very competitive National League Central Division behind the Cardinals and Pirates. They gave excited fans hope, however, by defeating the Pirates in the wildcard game and the Cardinals in the division series. But the Billy Goat curse of 1945, bolstered by the Black Cat of 1969 and the Bartman foul ball debacle of 2003, held firm. The team faltered against the New York Mets in the championship series. They were swept four to nothing, and ex- their absence from the World Series was extended to 70 years. That's 7-0, the longest dry spell in professional sports history. And now, finally, the magical year of 2016 finally arrived. In July, ALL returned to Chicago for its 109th annual meeting, the first held in the Windy City since 1987 and the fifth overall. The meeting's highlights included President Keith Ann Stiverson presenting the Marion Gould Gallagher Distinguished Service Award to a fellow Chicago law librarian, Judith Wright, who spent her entire 40-plus years in the profession at the University of Chicago's D'Angelo Law Library. In accepting ALL's most prestigious award, Judith followed six prior recipients who spent the bulk of their careers in Chicago. Bill Murphy, Frank Lukes of Baker and McKenzie, Leon Liddell of the University of Chicago and Northwestern University, Elizabeth Benyon of the University of Chicago, Adolph Sprutz, also of Northwestern and the University of Chicago, and Francis Bob Doyle of the Loyola University of Chicago Law Library. And lastly... Is there anything left to say about the 2016 Chicago Cubs? The team won 103 games, had the best record in baseball, featured the National League's most valuable player in Chris Bryant, 
and most important to long-suffering Cubs fans throughout the nation, smashed all the curses. They defeated the Cleveland Indians in a seventh and deciding game that many have called the most exciting World Series contest ever. With the Chicago River turned cubby blue on November 4th, 5 million ecstatic and frenzied rooters, that's twice the population of the city of Chicago, attended a World Series celebration parade because, for the first time in 108 years, the Cubs were champions of baseball. So, no, I guess there is nothing left to say. Oops. (laughs) One thing left to say. By the way, of shameless promotion. If this essay has whet your appetite for more stories combining baseball and the law, you may be interested in a new book, which I have co-authored with Ed Edmonds of the University of Notre Dame Law Library. It's called Baseball Meets the Law, a Chronology of Decision, Statutes, and Other Legal Events, and will be published in early 2017 by McFarlane. The publishers made me say that. And now I'm really done. Thank you very much. Hey, very good. Thank, Thank you very you much, much, Frank. You are welcome. That was a lot of fun. You brought back My a pleasure. lot of memories there. I figured I yeah. would name a few names that at least some folks would uh, would remember. And, of uh, course, there's I, so many I, names that I left out that I, that I really feel bad about, but... What can well, you the one that I jotted down was um, my first annual meeting um, was the one, was it in San Diego where Guido Sarducci was, or was Guido that was, No, that was in, in Chicago. That was in Chicago in 1987, Guido. But yeah, I think your first meeting was in, in San Diego in 84, wasn't it? Yeah. I think I we've talked that, about that before. But Guido Sarducci was the best. He was fantastic. Yes, he was. That, uh, and as I recall, you know, he smoked all the time while he spoke, and as did Babe Russo. So I think they bonded over that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, very good. Well, thanks a lot, Frank. Um, we uh, look forward to um, uh, further installments on uh, Law Library History. I love the way you were able to bring in so much uh, baseball. I know what a baseball nut you are. So uh, I am. Well, I'll be, I'll be more than happy to come back in 108 years. It's not a problem. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks very much. Um, okay. And Frank, um, you know, as we mentioned, you're more than welcome to stick around um, and join us in the rest of the uh, podcast. Um, I, I appreciate that. I, I am retired and I spend most of my time doing baseball research, but I'm actually interested in what's going on to, in today's uh, law library world. So I will be here for at least a while. All right. Okay. So our next um, guest, uh, Emily Feltrin is going to uh, bring us up to speed on, um, I don't know if anybody's aware, but um, you might be aware that we have new uh, president getting ready to take office. And so there's some talk of transition going on. So I don't know, Emily, do you have any news from the Hill? Yeah, thanks, Rich. Um, so again, I'm Emily Feltrin, uh, AAAL's Director of Government Relations. And uh, yes, there was an election. Um, don't think I have to share yeah. that news, but um, just like <laughs> everyone else um, here at AAAL, and Rich is chair of AAAL's Government Relations Committee. Um, we have our Copyright Committee and our Digital Access to Legal Information Committee. And all kind of trying to wrap our heads around the election results and what it means for issues impacting 
law libraries and legal information and the policy issues we care about. Um, so AA did issue our policy priorities for the 115th Congress right after the election. We sent that around to all of our members, but it's also right up uh, on AllNet. Uh, if you go to allnet.org slash GRO, you can find a, a good link to it there. Um, and the priorities identify goals under the broad categories of access to government information and access to justice, along with balancing copyright, open government, and privacy. And we have friends in Congress on both sides of the aisle. Uh, it's important to continue to work with them, of course, as well as identify other allies in any new opposition we have or might have, um, depending on uh, new members of Congress. We're also looking at who the likely new committee chairs will be, the changes in leadership on particular committees that we anticipate, uh, and what we might expect to see as priorities in the House and Senate. Um, just as an example, Senator Leahy, who has served as the um, highest Democrat in the Senate Judiciary Committee, so either as chairman or ranking member for many years, he has decided to move over as ranking member um, to take the place of Senator Mikulski from Maryland as the ranking member on the Senate Appropriations Committee. So we're losing a big advocate for open government and privacy and uh, freedom of information on judiciary, but we're gaining an advocate in Senator Leahy on um, some other issues. Uh, Leahy's a long supporter of libraries and things like that. So those are the things we're looking for and and getting ready to position ourselves to uh, have the most impact in Congress. So AAAA is still doing our analysis with the Government Relations Committee and, and the other policy committees. Um, and we are going to hold an online training in just about a month on December 13th that will provide a quick just 30-minute analysis and a look into our uh, crystal ball of what to expect in the next administration. Librarians can use uh, their expertise, your expertise, and to position yourself as constituents to have greater impact in the next Congress and next administration. So the training is open and free to AAAL members and chapter members, uh, and I hope many of you will register as well. You can find that link. Um, I'm not sure if Mandy, I can't remember if I sent that particular one, um, but I certainly will if I don't have it up already. Um, but encourage. Register for that November 13th online training. Um, so there's a lot. Where, where is that link? Let me. Uh, so if you go just to allnet.org um, and you go under calendar, I had put it, but now I'm, I'm getting lost oh, in all okay. of my tabs here. So um, here we go. Okay, Mandy will in find it. Right now. It's in December, right? Yes, uh, there and we I go. just put it in, in the chat box. So, yes, it's December 13th, gotcha. uh, 11 a.m. Central Time. Good. So, obviously, there is a lot going on, um, but some of the issues that we're carefully tracking and will be likely engaging on in the new year uh, include those around surveillance and transparency and copyright. We know that there is going to be a high interest in overturning the open Internet order that the Federal Communications Commission uh, recently put out. That's, in other words, net neutrality. Um, along with opportunities around access to government information as data, demonstrating the value of libraries to the national infrastructure, emphasizing the role of law libraries in upholding the rule of law, uh, and lots more. So there will certainly be uh, lots going on in the new year. One of the more immediate things to watch is the appointment of the next Register of Copyrights, since Maria Palante left her position and the Library of Congress last month. And for those of you who read Double monthly Washington e-bulletin, uh, you know that in late October, 
Librarian of Congress, our new librarian, Dr. Carden, Carla Hayden, appointed Register of Copyrights Palante as a senior advisor for digital strategy, a new position, and Karen Temple Claggett as acting register. Well, the following week, Palante handed in her letter of resignation, not wanting to <laughs> accept the new position that she was offered, and the Library of Congress announced that they would conduct a national search for a new register. The Copyright Office is conducting a whole bunch of studies right now, including those on Section 108 and Section 1201, and AAA has submitted comments uh, on those studies and others. Uh, so we're closely paying attention to what's happening there at the office, and that'll be something to keep an eye out on um, in the next few months. It also looks likely that Congress will pass another short-term continuing resolution, we learned this week, um, kicking the proverbial can down the road to deal with agency funding for fiscal year 2017 at the beginning of the new year, rather than when the current funding measure expires on December 9th. This puts strain on all agencies, of course, but we're closely watching and paying attention to the Government Publishing Office and the Library of Congress in particular, since those include, among other things, support for FDSIS, soon-to-be GovInfo, the Federal Depository Library Program, and the Law Library of Congress. And I don't want to take up too much time. Um, there's a lot going on. Um, so I won't dive too deeply into our state-level priorities, but we will, of course, be continuing to promote the Uniform Electronic Legal Material Act, or UELMA, that many AAAL uh, members and many of our chapters are promoting in the states. And we have 13 UELMA enactments so far, and we're looking at probably about a dozen more states for UELMA introductions in the new year. Um, so that's definitely something where AAAL and our members will be very active. So clearly there's a lot going on in the policy world, and if you want to stay up to speed on the latest news from Washington and around the country, I'd recommend, in addition to signing up for the webinar, of course, uh, fill out AAAL's advocacy team survey to tell us a little bit about you. It's just a few questions about your policy interests, whether you know your members of Congress, uh, and you're also able to join the advocacy listserv through that. Um, the AAAL Government Relations Committee sends weekly posts to the listserv that Rich is coordinating as chair of GRC this year uh, to help keep our members up to speed and engaged on the libraries in the profession. So that's available to our members. Um, to kind of keep you in the loop on what's going on in D.C. So with that, um, well, thanks, Rich, for the opportunity to give an update. Yeah. Um, do you have a question or <laughs> want to throw something out there? I was going to um, just throw out something to the people that are listening and, um, uh, and then just continue to spread the word. As we um, uh, discussed yesterday in the uh, conference call, we um, – um, there are well over 4,000, uh, you know, presidential appointments that will be made in the next couple of months. The news is filled with information about the high-level ones, you know, appointments for Secretary of State, Attorney General, and so forth. But there are hundreds and hundreds of smaller um, appointments or less visible, less smaller profile appointments that that we may not be aware of um, or haven't heard of just because they don't have the PR, but that some of us who are listeners or people who are listening to this may, you know, hear about, you know, just some smaller position 
within GPO or within some agency that we may be able to have um, an impact on or influence the choice. It may be important. Um, don't assume that Emily knows everything. She she pretty much does, but uh, th- there may be a detail or two that'll you know skip her attention. So when you are aware of things like that that are kind of um, out of left field, let me or let Emily know uh, directly so that we can um, you know fold those into the priorities. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think especially we're, you know, in a time of great transition, obviously, um, with a new president that has a very different agenda than the president we've had for the last eight years and a new Congress, um, new members of Congress. So there's a lot going on and a lot of changes. And AAAL's advocacy program really relies on our members' engagement and involvement. And I know many of you on the call or on the radio show today have been in anything from writing a letter to your member of Congress to attending our advocacy trainings or going to Capitol Hill. So um, there's all sorts of ways to be involved. And if that means, you know, sending us uh, some links to articles that you think are really interesting about, you know, the impact on legal information or the profession, we would love to see them. And and, uh, Rich, as chair of the Government Relations Committee, is in a great position this year to to work closely with me and um, develop our priorities and make sure that we're advocating for law libraries and the profession in the best way that we can. Great. All right. Well, thank you very much, Emily. And and I understand you're going to be sticking around to um, uh, join us for the main event, the next portion of our uh, podcast today on state of state law. Yeah, absolutely. I'll stick around. Yeah, good. Well, and it looks to me on the control panel that uh, James Turk from OpenStates.org has um, joined us on the line. Hello, James. Hi, how are you? Good. Uh, thanks very much for uh, joining us. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. And um, we've got uh, several people, and I'll let uh, Roger um, introduce everybody, I think. Um, well, no, let me do it. Um, you, you know Roger Stahlbeck? And Kyle, I think, also just joined us. I did. Kyle? Can you hear me? Can you I hear me? sure can. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. So um, Kyle's joining us from uh, Harvard University. You're no longer Harvard Law, right? You're yes, Harvard General. I'm Harvard Yard, where I park my car. Yeah. All right. Uh, the dapper Kyle Courtney. And then um, also with us on the line um, for Kyle and James, just to know, Frank Hodak from uh, Southern Illinois, Emily Feltrin, uh, Government Affairs. Wait, now, what is your title officially, Emily? I keep calling you our it Government Affairs government Representative. Relations. Yeah, Director, Director of, of Government, government relations. relations. Okay, I want to get that right. Yeah, <laughs> Director of Government that. Relations for AALL. Uh, Mandy Lee is manning our chat room. Uh, Ken Hirsch joining us from University of Cincinnati. And Roger Skalbeck, who um, uh, from the University of Richmond. And I'm Richard Leiter from the University of Nebraska. So we're all here. We've got a big panel and some interesting things to talk about. Um, at this point, I'm going to step back a little bit and turn it over to Roger. Take it away. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Rich, and thanks for everybody um, for being on the call. And uh, 
Emily, thanks to you and uh, thanks to Frank for uh, the great information um, there uh, kicking off this episode. Um, what I wanted to do here, and um, Rich had framed it well in, in talking about things, is we're looking at some topics in the area of the state of state law. And it's kind of a precursor conversation to a conference that AAAL is holding in Boston on December 2nd in um, coordination with Boston University School of Law, which is where our current president, Ron Wheeler, is. Uh, what we want to do is talk through some topics that relate to the conference without trying to take too much away from or, or cover the same ground as we have at that conference. Um, very briefly, what we're trying to do there is to look at issues in uh, state copy or copyright in state legal materials, and in particular access to legal materials, uh, preservation, long-term use, and inspirational um, projects um, in the area of using uh, that kind of information. Um, and uh, one of the things uh, we're trying to do there is uh, look at both education, what are the issues, uh, inspiration, what are some inspiring projects in the area, and conversation, which is to talk about things, to make connections with people and projects. So from that middle category of the inspiration, uh, what I wanted to do is welcome James Turk, who uh, was the primary developer and, or at least the lead developer, uh, with uh, Sunlight Labs, who had developed uh, the Open States project. And interestingly, I was reading up on it, it has um, a connection to Chicago in that it had um, its origins, if I'm understanding things correctly, to a hackathon dating back to 2008 in Chicago that then uh, develops to uh, the project that it was um, uh, when it developed within Sunlight Labs, and it's currently um, in a state of uh, transition into a new area. So that's kind of a background to that, but maybe, James, if you could, what I'd like to do is, is have you sort of talk about a little bit about the origins of it and also in particular mm -hmm. talk about what Open States does and um, some of the challenges and opportunities of, of running a project of this nature. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you. Um, yeah, it, it does go back to um, a Hackathon in Chicago. The, so for those... Um, that haven't seen Open States, um, or what Open States is, is a collection of um, state legislative information. Um, so not necessarily like uh, it doesn't. We don't cover law um, like as passed, but basically what's happening in state legislatures um, and what has happened in state legislatures since the uh, beginning of the project. So we collect basically every, um, you know, uh, bill, you know, resolution. Some states have some uh, quirky other things that we cover. Uh, and, uh, and we also include D.C. And D.C. has basically every contract appears before the council uh, for kind of approval. Uh, so every contract that goes up in uh, D.C. Um, so all that information as well as information on the, legislat the legislators themselves. Um, so, you know, things like their contact information and stuff like that, which is kind of geared at an audience of people that are trying to, um, you know, reach out to these people, which can, it's not always the easiest information to find on the state sites. Um, and so what we do is we kind of uh, crawl and co uh, collate all that data into one place. Uh, it's a large database that makes all this available. Um, for free to the public. Um, it's used primarily by kind of researchers uh, and journalists, but uh, as well as people finding it um, because often the site is easier to use, uh, depending on what state you're in. Some states have great sites. 
but uh, I'd say you know about half of them don't, and often we're a slightly easier to use alternative to the state site as well, even just for the general public. Um, so we surface all that information. Um, uh, as was mentioned, it was a project that kind of came out of a hackathon. Uh, we wanted to see if we could get people to help us collect some of this information. Uh, it turned out that we happened to be in Chicago and we threw this in front of a team of people and we had about 30 volunteers that day that kind of jumped in and we realized this is okay. There's something here. There's demand for this. And that was in 2008. And since then the project has grown quite a bit. Uh, we collect a lot more data now um, and we have all the historical data too. And a lot of people have uh, done some interesting research projects uh, using kind of using that data and seeing how language has spread um, from one state to another. Um, and in proposed legislation and past legislation. And as was also mentioned, uh, we're, kind of, we're undergoing a period of transition. Um, Sunlight is no longer going to be maintaining technical projects, and so we are taking it on as an independent organization and we'll be um, figuring out exactly what that means. We're still in the first month of that, um, but it's, it's a large project, as you can imagine, uh, to, to make sure that all 50 states' data stays as fresh as possible. We try to keep it updated to the day, if not more frequently. Um, and so we will be kind of picking that project back up, uh, myself and three other people that were uh, core contributors to the project over the years have kind of agreed to come back on and we'll be working on it uh, primarily on a volunteer basis um, going forward. Great. Hmm. Um, and to anybody here, feel free to, to jump in with questions. Yeah. Go along. Well, first of all, I, if I can jump in, um, mm -hmm. James, I, I want to just say um, I'm a fan. So if if I'm breathing funny while I'm talking here. I'm in front of somebody who's a hero. So um, you and and um, I think openstates.org and govtrack.us are two of the most outstanding um, websites out there. I, it, I just love what you're doing. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Um, it's great to hear. What, so it, as you were talking, um, I'm really concerned. You, so you don't you're you're just now sort of um trying to figure out how you're going to be funded mm -hmm. and stay funded long term is that where you're at or um yeah we are yeah um you know this came as a bit of a surprise to the people at sunlight um as well as those of us that used to be at sunlight that worked on the project um we didn't get a lot i mean the people at sunlight did a fantastic job of handing things off to us um, especially uh -huh. given the, I mean, I, we couldn't have asked for more, but, um, yeah, it was a relatively short runway that we had. Um, and so we are, you know, we're up and we're up and going. We, we switched the site over into uh, essentially what we're calling read only mode, uh, for the next couple of, uh, months, I would imagine probably through January. Um, fortunately we're at a time where all the state sites are in, they're a mess anyway. Uh, this time of year we often had to stop scraping anyway, because a lot of the state sites had like partially complete as rosters got updated and things like that. A lot of them aren't in great shape. So we would often enter into a kind of a pause right now anyway. So in a sense, it's, a, it's an okay time for this. Uh, we hope to be back up by the beginning of sessions, uh, at least in the majority of states. Um, and yeah, we are, um, we, we've taken, yes. Are, are you, um, do you work with Josh uh, Tauber at all on this? Is um, he involved so, in your project? Um, not no no. I mean Josh. Okay. GrubTrack is GrubTrack was an inspiration, and I mean we've met Josh yeah. many times, but uh, it's a it's a separate project. Yeah. Okay. All right. Just curious. Sorry, I didn't. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, not a problem. Um, but yeah, so I mean, that's kind of where we're at. I mean, yeah, it's we're all kind of getting um, we're all kind of getting back up to speed. Uh, a lot of us hadn't really touched the project in, in months. Uh, I've been off the project for a little over um, a little over a year. Um, but I, I'd say uh-huh. you know it's it's something that I had done for seven years. So, you know, the learning curve isn't too bad to get back, to get back into it. Um, yeah. And so that, that's where we're at. And I mean, I think we're, we've had a, we have had a great outpouring of support um, so far. Um, right now we're mainly, you know, trying to figure out, um, you know, making sure we can, I think we're good on paying our server bills. Um, we're trying to figure out, you know, how we um, probably will need to hire a couple of data quality interns and some of the other things that we used to have um, some, kind of low some low budget items uh, that we'd like to have to get the data clean again and some other things like that but um, if people are interested uh, we are uh, crowdfunding kind of a, an initial um, small um, fund to kind of pay this general support type stuff we're not paying ourselves out of it right now or don't have any immediate plans mm-hmm. to but that will be um, on openstates.org there's a link at the top that has a blog post that kind of has our initial plans and uh, a link if people are interested in supporting the project Wonderful. Okay. Hey, James, I have a question about um, you know the kinds of work um, that go into a project like this, and and where mm-hmm. some of the dynamic um, uh, features of it uh, fall. Which is um, how stable are the tools reaching out to fifty different and well fifty plus um, legislative agencies? Mm-hmm. How much is changing, and, and what's the balance of work for you to kind of improve maybe code structure versus fix things where, you know, a legislature has readjusted things or provided new tools for um, data access to their um, sources? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it is, it's the bulk of what the project has to has to account for, um, and it, it can be quite variable, uh, as you can probably imagine, across the states. Um, you know, for better or worse, a lot of states don't spend a lot of time thinking about their um, – their legislative information system. Um, now, the worst part of that, obviously, being that sometimes these things can be incredibly cumbersome to use. Um, there were states that had, you know, some incredibly difficult systems, uh, even for a person to navigate, um, let alone trying to figure out a way to automate it. Um, the good news is that because of that lack of attention, uh, those really difficult ones tend to be the most stable. Uh, the states that are always chasing the new and shiny, and I mean, I wouldn't want to discourage a state from improving what they're offering, but the states that are always uh, every two years rolling out a new a new version, those are the ones that we always end up having to do a bunch of work on. Um, I do think it's good. Like Most states tend not to make a bunch of radical changes mid-session. I think that would uh, probably upset too many people in the state. So we usually kind of get a little bit of heads up, although sometimes we find out, you know, that they're working on a new system um, and they're going to unveil it, you know, the first day that they're in session, which is not going to give us any time, any time to adjust our systems to it. We're going to have a little bit of a gap there. But um, so, yeah, it varies a lot. Um, And then what we do is we we have a framework that we've created over the years that uh, kind of unifies this information. And then there's kind of 51 plus instances of it. Uh, kind of custom tailored to each state. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot of custom work that goes into each state. Um, but in any given year, we find ourselves, I, I think historically, we, we always kind of budgeted our time for rewriting about 10 states a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then five to 10 would have smaller tweaks, and somewhere around half would, would require minimal maintenance in any given year. Fascinating. Yeah. Anybody else have questions for James while he's here? 
Well, James, um, this is um, Emily. Hi. Hey, can you hear me? Okay. Um, yes. Yeah, I just wanted to say for uh, for me and, and I know a lot of our folks in the states for tracking state legislation, we've used open states a lot, including we have a an act that I mentioned um, in my little uh, report earlier, the Uniform Electronic Legal Material Act. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but basically it uh, ensures that basic uh, primary legal materials that are uh, made available online and deemed official are preserved and authenticated and made available for permanent public access. So we've been working with a lot of the states and uh, legal services in the states and legislative council, et cetera, um, on that aspect of things. Um, so I think that kind of uh, just intersects a lot with what you were talking about, mm -hmm. how, you know, some yeah, states absolutely. are messy. A lot of states just mm -hmm. um, are not necessarily thinking proactively about their electronic legal materials. And so um, yeah. AAAL is, is, working in our way to change that. And I uh, just wanted to thank you too for, for all of Sunlight's work while you were there and your work now and, you know, the importance of the project, I think, for a lot of people. Obviously, um, Roger brought you on today because to acknowledge that. But I just wanted to chime in too um, for my oh. own perspective as well. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, and the work that's being done by, you know, by any anyone that's pushing for states to think more about that stuff is always making our lives so much easier. Um, I mean, even the change that we've seen uh, 2008, 2009 um, in states that were uh, just wiping their material, like, okay, you know, the, the 2009 session is done. Why would anyone need that information? It's, it's gone. Um, we were actually brought in by the Minnesota Historical Society um, after Minnesota had basically done that because they realized that we were, in essence, one of the only remaining archives of the previous session's data. Um, and so the wow. – so it's it's great to see that you know more people I think people are paying more attention to this and the more people that kind of push on this uh, you know the easier this stuff the easier this stuff gets and then we can start doing the you know the things that we really uh, collecting the data was always kind of a, a plan a first step we we want to go beyond that and actually like be able to provide some insight into what's happening in the legislatures but uh, with the data quality being what it is uh, it's hard to get past that first step. <laughs> <clears throat> and where you said there's a, a small crowdfunding project. Mm -hmm. Where where can uh, we have a chat room that we're sort of sharing some links okay. with, and we'll post things. Um, where where can we find a link to that? Is it on um, at the top so of the? On the top, um, I don't have the, uh, the URL is pretty long to to spell out, but um, on the top of openstates.org, there's a there's a red banner that links to our our site, um, mm -hmm. and if you click through there. Um, I think it also might have the donate link right on the banner. Um, okay. And if not, then there's a donate link within the, the first blog post that links there. Perfect. We'll look for that. Well, right. this is great. I'm, I'm, it's especially knowing that um, some of the changes uh, to this have come about within, you know, within the last week, and and you know, certainly in the, in the last month. It's great to have you on mm -hmm. to to get an update on where things are at, and and to highlight this is a you know another source where. Um, the availability of and reliability of state uh, legal materials really comes to fore. And that's really kind of what we're trying to, with our conference, um, support, promote, and explore some of these um, these areas. Um, so if you're able to, I'd love to have you stay on the conversation. I know you had a limited time, so you're, you're welcome to, to stay. Yeah, I'll try to stay on as long as I can. Okay, great. Yeah, um, so also on the call here, um, 
is uh, Kyle Courtney, and um, I thought maybe it'd be interesting. Um, so he works in copyright at um, at Harvard, and I know he recently talked to folks in New Jersey about some things, and he has, which I'll drop a link to in the show notes, a uh, website that he's helped um, promote and didn't wasn't the sole author of, but but they hosted Harvard for the State Copyright Resource Center that looks to um, kind of grade each of the different states um, in a color-coded way as to the availability of and reliability of, of state information and looking to see what claims um, different states are making about that. So, Kyle, if you, if you could say briefly um, sort of a little bit about that project I just linked to in the show notes, and then um, if you have anything else to say, I know you and I chatted briefly about what you've done in New Jersey and maybe some other sure. thoughts you have. Absolutely, and you can hear me pretty well? Yeah. Good. All right. So, uh, yeah, we started this project because, uh, we, we, you know, we come at it from a library perspective, of course, and we had uh, in our design library just a host of unbelievable government-published works having to do with, uh, you know, the, the birth of the roads in California and, the you know, the massive sewage systems and the creation of uh, the Jersey Turnpike. And all these materials were published by the states in some capacity. So it's not just necessarily about the laws, but this could be posters, ephemera, reports. Um, and in many cases, we wanted to make this stuff available. In some cases, we were, we were the only ones that had this report. You know, they're printed on paper that's not great. So we wanted to preserve them in some capacity. And I just figured at the time period, um, I was like, well, it's a state. So it should be open automatically, right? Just like the federal system. And unfortunately, that's not true. Um, so we we looked at an article that was written by um, the lawyer for the uh, NPR, and she was taking uh, this from a journalist perspective of, you know, be careful with state materials to some state certain copyright. Uh, and she did a few, and I called her Ashley Messenger is her name. Uh, she's excellent. And I said, you didn't happen to do the other, you know, 46 states, did you? And she said no. So what we embarked on was a basically an 18-month campaign to track all the different levels of state government and their potential policies that they have regarding the openness or at least the copyright-free records. You know, ultimately, we would love if all the states just said, oh, this is in the public domain because it's state copyright. But what we found is that the states were doing many different things and depend on the, uh, the, the, the government sites. Sometimes it depends on the, uh, who's uh, hosting the documentation depends on if it came from the legislature or the executive authority. So using a few cases that came out of California, Florida, and New York, we created parameters to do a scorch-the-earth 50-state survey of any law, policy, uh, constitutional mention, open record law or otherwise, um, state and library archive statements, um, any advisory opinions, whether from their general counsel, their attorney, um, and we basically search everything we possibly find to determine whether or not states are asserting copyright over their materials. Um, obviously, asserting copyright over the law is a very specific version of this, but this thematically brought up an interesting thing where states were doing all sorts of wild things to assert copyright. Um, for example, in Florida, they have an open record law, and Florida's judiciary ruled that that open record law also prized copyright open. And so they said anything published by the state was copyright it was copyright open or public domain. Whereas New York 
doing the same level of analysis that the Florida <laughs> judiciary did, said each individual agency determines the copyright of its documentation. And so we had all sorts of in-betweens. Um, so if you look at this map, and I know they've linked it online, you know, a lot of the country is orange and yellow, which kind of is in between our red and green zone. And it, it was a very eye-opening. And again, if you click on a state, you get every single source of authority that we could find on whether huh. or not this, this is open. So I, I would have a look at it if you can. And, and also, this is done in correlation with a group that I'm involved with called the Free State Government Information, FSGI. Um, and we're looking for volunteers to, to keep this fresh. But as of now, as you can see, there's not a lot of green. <laughs> Kyle, let me just see if I understand you uh, correctly. So for each state, does it vary from agency to agency or can vary from agency to agency, whether the state is claiming copyright and in the information that they're publishing? Yes, yes. We find that states that have You're agencies kidding. that sell GIS material – they think it yeah. has some sort of sort of monetary value, so they want to remain to keep that copyrighted, so they can they can uh. you know exploit it commercially somehow. Whereas other states are not quite sure. One of the most interesting ones was South Carolina, which actually they do assert copyright supposedly over some of their documentation, laws, posters, etc. But at the same time, they have their libraries and archives, and this is the state library saying well, if it arrives here, we're going to make it open. So it's like one hand doesn't know what the other hand is doing. It was quite an interesting um, thing. And, again, we've compiled case law and statutes and administrative regulations to try and track all of this down. Huh. Wow. So what, is, there, is there any uniform rule with regard to primary law? Yeah, that's the thing. So <laughs> this is why this is ancillary to our conference, which is uh, coming up you know, uh, in a couple of weeks, is that yeah, we thought this would be at least some guidance could be revealed from these states, these laws. Um, but, but no, not particularly. Um, the, the, one of the states, for example, we couldn't even link to the laws in the state because the terms of use and the vendor – that actually publishes the law says you weren't allowed to link to the law. So you're um, kidding. No, I'm not kidding. <laughs> well, so, James, James, um, are you are you encountering problems like this where you're trying openstates.org is trying to link to law and you're getting um, booted out or get a, a cease and desist order or takedown <clears throat> notice or. Uh, no, so so we haven't um, for um, for the LIS information. I don't think anybody's made a real claim. The sites have kind of those uh, those footers at the bottom that are like you know the, all the information is copyright, whatever, no copying is allowed. Um, 
and I don't know if I should say this on a call with a bunch of lawyers, but we've always just intentionally ignored those. Um, <laughs> no, no, I agree. I, I, kind of I agree. That's a good idea. I, I think they throw that on by default, um, and we've we've never been challenged. I mean, we 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 figured do we figured 50 states at least one would challenge us, um, and I know that there have been some people that have tried scraping those sites directly for commercial purposes, um, and so maybe the yeah. fact that we reviewed as non-commercial uh, got us oh. by. Um, but that um, I, we've never had any issue, fortunately. But I mean, it was something we were afraid of, and, and we're kind of geared up for it at one point. But uh, Carl yeah, Malmud, well, yeah, I know. Those, yeah, yeah. Those, the Carl Malmud and his lawsuits are really kind of testing the waters on that. And and additionally, is any clauses? Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, do you, do you are you aware of the status of his lawsuit with um, uh, Oregon? was the last one I heard of heard about he was challenging Roger has a uh a docket sheet update I'm not sure Roger is that one of the states yeah the two that I'm tracking most closely are out of Georgia um but I don't have I've, I've been tracking him for about a month and a half now and I haven't seen anything recently um, there's, yeah. there's so two the, levels here there's there's the when you incorporate something by reference, like a building code or fire code, that's one type of suit that's going on, and should that be open and available. And then there's the other one is the state has asked on officially publishing a code and has a third-party vendor publish the official code with annotations, and that's right. another type of lawsuit that's going on. So there's it's, it's many flavors, I guess, is what we uncovered. Hmm. Wow. And by the way, so no. when I went to New Jersey, it was to talk about, you know, um, opening it up <laughs> a little bit. Um, and one model that's been kind of kicked around a little bit is, okay, if the state is going to assert copyright over some of its government materials or all of its government materials, laws and otherwise, maybe they release it under a Creative Commons license. And so a couple states are, have experimented with that as well. So that way they're still asserting copyright, but they're at least making it open in some capacity. Interesting. Hey, Emily, do am I is my memory serving me right? Isn't there a um, um, piece of legislation that we're tracking um, regarding the incorporation of uh, codes like the electrical code and building codes by reference into the U.S. code annotated. And, yeah, um, so there have been various making... things around um, uh, edicts of law, um, ensuring that edicts of law are uh, not copyrighted, that they're available to the public, and that incorporation reference materials are in some way available to the public. And AA has been right. tracking a lot of that, and um, and we've signed on to various statements over the last couple of years, you know, um, in line with our position that uh, more materials should be in the public domain. Um, and so, yeah, that's definitely something that we've been we've been following. There have been a few right. different instances. Um, no specific legislation at the federal level, um, but there was a hearing a couple of years ago. Um, that Carl Malamud, um, I think he testified, he's certainly done a lot of work in this area, um, as his name's come up already and as all of you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, so the, there there has definitely been some of that boiling up as well. And there's okay. a big conversation around that within the American Bar Association as well, looking at um, these. And I think the thing, an area that it's it's 
pretty pronounced is that um, the Code of Federal Regulations is often where it comes up. And, and the, the impact there is on businesses. So if you need to comply with, say, a building code or, or certain things, um, I guess there's some 9,500 private standards incorporated, if, if this um, figure I see is accurate. Uh, but the challenge is that if you need to comply with it for building or for sort of general business that's regulated, you need to know what's covered within it. And you know, the cost of a standard can range from 40 to $1,000 um, for, for yeah. sort of individual ones. Now, yeah. mind you, also, this what's interesting about that is that some the, in many of the interviews and talks I've been, the states sometimes are unaware of this problem. Um, you know, the library, the state archives and the state libraries are keenly aware normally, but some of the legislators, some of the attorneys that I talked to that worked for different states, you know, they had no idea that it's so kind of decentralized and that they would pre they're preventing by accident citizen access. So I think, you know, information is power in this case. As much as the lawsuits are effective, you know, there's this, also this idea that we get this information out there. And people are surprised when we tell them this, and it, they work for the government. So very interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's so – Really um, – go ahead. Uh, yeah, anything else, Kyle, from um, the discussions in New Jersey or, or things that you've um, come in contact with? Uh you know, there's, there's, again, there's been this experimentation. I ordered the legislative history of the state that adopted the CCBY law, which is Virginia, um, because Creative Commons is also another one of those things that not everyone knows about. And it gives the state the option to still retain, if they have concerns, control over what they perceive of as potentially copyrightable information that they want to exploit maybe somehow, but still, again, releases it in a way that they get the citation, the credit, the linking, et cetera. So um, I'm curious to see if that would be more amenable to the folks I'm talking about in the future, but at our conference, we'll be talking much about this in the future, I think. So there is no law. Perfect. Yeah, I had seen a related thing, which is, I mean, we're talking here about legislatures, but I had seen something recently that um, – WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization, uh, had adopted, um, there's a newly developed uh, CC license um, specifically for intergovernmental organizations, and they had adopted yeah. it for all of their publications, which I think is a pretty yeah. interesting kind of middle, not really middle ground, but but sort of new nuance to how this stuff is put out. Sure, and I think it, it accomplishes both goals. Yeah, that was a very interesting uh, development. That's a good sure. question. That has. Yep. Oh. Great. Yeah. So, um, Ken or or James or or Emily, and if you want to chime in, you have questions. There's some other directions we could take this, but I want to make sure if you're on the call, you've got a chance to sort of share thoughts, um, continue the conversation here. No, I don't have any questions, but I applaud the work that uh, Kyle and James are doing. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the the things that you mentioned, James, that um, OpenStates.org is uh, doing that I I find fascinating. Um, talking about ways of tracking the uh, the language and similarities of language 
from statute to statute and across uh, states. Um, I do a lot of uh, state law uh, research, you know, 50 state surveys, and um, well, heck, I may as well pr plug my book, the National Survey of State Laws. Um, you know, and it's the holiday season. You, you people may want to think about mention great stock, great stock. Oh, why didn't stuffer. I think of that? Yeah, oh, yeah there you go. Public domain. But, um, but the, um, um, but I've noticed that even though fifty, all fifty states may legislate on a particular topic, the range of terms that they will use to say the exact same thing is just stunning sometimes. Um, it, it, they, they can legislate on the same topic and nowhere use the sa any of the same words. It's, um, mm -hmm. uh, my, and I have a, my favorite example is with um, the um, lethal injection method of execution for the death penalty. I've been doing this book for 20 plus years. And so I've seen it, you know, migrate from, very few states having lethal injection to now almost, you know, most of them that still have the death penalty, um, you know, use lethal injection, but all of the states use a very variety or variation on um, this euphemism, uh, the intravenous administration of super fast acting barbiturates administered by a licensed professional in sufficient quantities to induce coma and death. That's, That's a long a way of saying lethal injection. Yeah, well, yeah. and each state does it just a little bit differently. Ultra fast acting or super fast acting. It's a very frustrating when you try to do 50 state surveys. So, I mean, that for openstates.org, I've been impressed with how well you've been able to pull things in um, from different states. I don't know how you do it, but pretty cool oh thank you yeah it's i mean it's one of those things we, we'd love to be able to you know be a data source for for people that are trying to to look at those differences um so they're not you know it's it's more than half the job i'm sure is just figuring out where all, where the ally uh how the ally systems work across the state so yeah we um that kind of research is the kind of thing that you know we love to be enabling so good to hear thank you do you have any like thesaurus or something like that 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 you have been working um, with in order to normalize <clears throat> language so yeah we don't we don't currently normalize um any language i mean we we have some um some basic things like i mean it's really having it all in one place allows you to to do some things just with full text search um that yeah. have made uh things useful and then the university of chicago data science for um social good program uh, worked with us, I guess it was one or two summers, I guess two summers ago now, um, That and they worked on an amazing project um, that is definitely worth a plug, which uh, actually did uh, kind of, they had some, a mixture of, I think, some policy students and some, like, PhD computer science uh, students that were kind of looking at the harder problem of actual, like, you know, English language comprehension, and uh, I think they, they went down a couple different roads and also kind of this this concept of like, um, you know, legal plagiarism detection, uh, I guess. <clears throat> hmm. Very interesting. Well, what are the, um, 
big issues that are that we're facing with regard to um you know the this copyright issue or control over publication of primary laws that that are coming up in addition to Uelma um you know and all the issues of preservation um what what's what's next are we going in the right direction i guess i'm throwing this out to Kyle and uh, James you know what do you, how do you think we're going as a country uh <laughs> well you know <laughs> let's put the election aside for a moment and just discuss this issue um at least the people i talk to in some of the legislatures um are you know they're at least listening um, I'm continued to be invited, so that's how I know um, that you know, they don't reject this assertion. Um, but the, again, I think it's a matter of um, it's a matter of policy in many ways, and that's hard to, as you said, it doesn't always come through the legislature. In Massachusetts, it came through the corporations division, which said any document produced by Massachusetts state government is public domain. I mean, so they were given the task there. So it's finding the right person or people or department or level of authority to get that message there. Um, And then the other part of it is, you know, the education and outreach portion of it. So the only way we're going to be successful, I really think, is we continue to support open states. (laughs) We continue to support, uh, you know, WWL's efforts to get this done and have this dialogue and conversation. Because, again, most, most places I talk to are open to the idea of making this stuff available, and especially the law, which is, you know, again, we're losing to the vendors, not necessarily to the citizens or the government. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I'd agree with, yeah, I mean, from, from what I've seen, it, I think that importance on kind of finding the right individual was something that we found. I mean, we had, we had breakthroughs in the weirdest ways uh, early in open states history. I mean, and on things that don't necessarily matter a ton, um, one of my favorite ones was we had, um, you know, like I mentioned, it's not directly related to the law, but we tracked uh, the information on the legislators themselves. And we had, I think it was a um, senior official uh, or like a senior member of leadership in New Jersey that emailed us wondering why his picture wasn't on our website um, when the, like his <laughs> colleagues in Idaho had their pictures. Uh, and that opened a dialogue though. I mean, like we were like, well, you yeah. don't publish that information. <laughs> like, and also while you're at it, would you mind publishing like committee votes? Um, so like, yeah. and that led to an actual productive dialogue that, you know, who would have guessed that someone just wanted their picture on a website. So yeah, we always joked around yeah. about like if we had a really bad data quality, we would just start, you know, taking people's pictures down and seeing if they complained. But uh, that's really great. <laughs> that's that's great. Um, great yeah, too. so I think that that to so underscore though, like the importance of just like finding the people that are willing to kind of work on this because I, I don't think that there's like direct opposition, but I do think it flies beneath a lot of people's radar. They don't realize that this information's not out there, at least at least on the open state side. I don't think many people are opposed to it being out there, but. And then there's the authority issue, which is really interesting. So sometimes when I get in front of the wrong person, or not the wrong person, but somebody, you know, you go for permission somewhere in some some state agency, and they're like, well, we don't give permission. And I ask, well, who does? And they don't know. (laughs) I'm like, well, we want to make preservation copies of it. We want to do this and that. How do we do that? And they're not sure. They send this to another department. That department's like, well, I can't answer that. So, again, it's, it's this kind of endless cycle of no one's in charge of this, maybe sometimes in some states. 
Absolutely. Yeah, you know, you raised a really interesting point. You know, I'll bet if you were to do a, um, you know, just a man on the street survey in any city, I mean, beyond the obvious problem of trying to get people to understand the question, because um, I think most people are completely ignorant about how the law is published, period. But getting beyond that, I think that that most people probably assume that all of the laws and all everything published by the state officially it would just be open and free for all the citizens to have access to and distribute however they see fit. I mean, don't you yeah, think I, that? No, you know. I think you're right. I think taxpayers, you know, <laughs> especially would, again, and, and people get pro se patrons that learn this the hard way all the time. You get small solo practitioners that are learning this at our public right. law library. Right. Um, they're realizing, they're like, what do you mean I can't see the state code unless it's been printed in some capacity? Or what do you mean I need an account right. with some vendor? Yeah, that's, it is a mm-hmm. shock level for, but they have to get there. You're right. The man on the street right. is not concerned, just assumes. But that's a nice thing, though. If there's open access assumed, then we don't have to win over the citizenry. Uh-oh. Right. To a certain extent. But you have to get you have to get them to understand the issue in the first place. I mean, yes. I had and a there's a risk situation. Not doing it. I had a situation not too long ago, a few years ago. Um, there was a builder. Um, came into the library and he got, I don't know, he was having some dispute with, um, you know, the county building inspector or something. And they were fighting over, you know, the, not fighting, but, you know, arguing about some aspect of the, you know, IEEE or quadruple E or however many E's it's got, you know, um, uh, standard. That's referred to either in the CFR or the U.S. Code, and so he came to the law library and wanted to see this darn code and, you know, and see how he got it wrong. And, you know, we, I told him we didn't have it. And uh, he said, how come you don't have it? You know, it's referred to in the code. And I said, well, the thing costs, you know, 1400 bucks a year and it's not really law materials. Well, he was just appalled um, that, that the government would refer to standards that were, so prohibitively expensive that uh, you know libraries wouldn't just automatically have them. He thought that it, since it was referred to in the code, it was part of the code, and therefore he should just be able to walk into a law library and get it. Yeah, that's the whole you know uh, incorporation by reference discussion. Right. It, yeah, it, and that's the thing. It, it really impacts people's day to day work with things like you know buildings and trades and um, business. And a lot of those companies that are publishing those things are just, you know, the textbook definition of a monopoly. <laughs> you know, they're the only ones that publish it, and they restrict it pretty well. Yeah. And they make it cost very high also. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they have a limited um, market. True. Yeah. Mm. But that's the irony, because we're always looking for uniformity in law, right? You're, in your death penalty exception, you're talking about how they always use different words. Well, these companies right. are designed to come in and write the same words 
So the legislature doesn't have to do a lot of work, and they just adopt it or incorporate it by reference. And so you're like, great, right. we have uniformity in this law, but we can't access it now. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Wow. Yeah. Interesting kind of how um, the, um, the as we move further and further into the, I don't know, and I hate this term, but the digital age, it sounds too spooky, but um, as we move further and further along in this um, direction, more and more uh, information being published electronically, it seems like instead of things getting simpler, um, the problems that we're facing are getting more magnified, more intensified. You know, in the old days, you either had it or you didn't. Now, now you've got access to it, but you got to bend over backwards or pay a thousand bucks in order to get it. It's really weird. Yeah. Yeah. And it's putting the you know the burden on on the universities, the libraries, the law schools to to provide this kind of access. The public law libraries are you know they're not their their budgets are not great either. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, uh, thank um, you, James, for coming along and um, and uh, talking about open states. Um, I wanted to mention briefly. It's not exactly in the area of um, state law, but just just again, the big purpose behind open states is big access to wide varieties of things, so you can get signals and data and sources as to what the legislatures are doing. Sunlight Labs had a few other projects they had done, and those have been, I know you said you didn't know much about it, but I wanted to share with folks, those have been taken over, I think, largely by ProPublica that's providing a lot of resources for journalists. And this is an area where I think there's probably good uh, inspiration and transparency of things, Um, people writing about government, sort of tracking activities, Everything from tracking deleted tweets by politicians for politiwoops to capital words, which lets you um, search political politician statements in the congressional record, House staff directory, House expenditure reports, and there's a Congress API all of, that had been out of the Sunlight Labs um, team that you were a part of and, and then lead developer for. And so those are over at ProPublica. So I think that's another collection of things where we can look to see um, some of the tools in place in service of, of what we all want, which is access to information to know sort of how we're tracking it, what, what the sources are, and how are people kind of treating it differently or, in you know, like the IBR sense, treating it the same way. So thanks for your efforts there, and I'm glad to see that's going on. Hopefully the support for that will continue and, um, and be um, stabilized here going into the the various state legislatures uh, picking up terms uh, in the new year, and uh, these other things will continue. I'll, I'll finish at the end with a couple words about the conference in um, in Boston in December, but I want to give everybody a chance to, I don't know, any, any closing comments, thoughts, um, follow-on, inspiration for us as we sort of think about both you know, these, these specific projects, but also the, the sort of broader goal of of accessing, sharing, and, and uh, talking about uh, all of these sources. What I would um, just say is um, everybody should go to openstates.org 
uh, click on the uh, banner at the top and follow the directions and um, give as much as you can. Uh, these are um, it's it's a it's a great service and it's worth uh, worth supporting. That's my two cents. And I would say, too, this is Emily. I would say that um, you know that we were talking about the general public and how you know most people may not know how legal material and government information is published. But I think the the primary legal materials are those that you know at least are recognizable, and so there's a real opportunity for law librarians and others in the in the legal field to sort of um, you know blow the horn on these issues and get people engaged yeah. and get them thinking about access and copyright and preservation and all those issues that you know our community may think about uh, a lot um, but others may not so you know finding partnerships um, within and outside of the community is really important as well yeah i mean go you know it, when you're um celebrating thanksgiving thanksgiving with family friends or whoever you do next week um you know just at some point just throw out just uh do informal polls and if you explain to people that um law is not just freely available they'll probably throw chicken legs at you so um not believe you that's my my bet. But my, get my the word out. Is turkey, not chicken. But turkey, I, I can yeah, see turkey where you're legs. going. Oh, well, that's what I meant. I, you know, animal with feathers. Jeez. There you are. God. Did I say chicken? You did say. You did. Oh. Well, okay. Well, well we're we went to that chicken. inner layer of the turducken, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, we're getting really close to the end of our time together today. We're within the five minute mark. Um, Roger, you did a fine job and, and reminded everybody about the, um, uh, the conference next month. Um, oh. Emily, earlier on in the show, you mentioned the webinar that's coming up. When is that again? Can you pitch it's it one December more time. 13th. Yeah. December yeah. 13th at 11 to 1130. So, those on, you know, uh, the central and eastern time zones, it's kind of like a lunch break. And um, maybe on the uh, Pacific, perhaps over breakfast, but it will be recorded. So if you can't be there live, um, you can watch it after. The, the nice thing about being live, of course, is you can chat questions and we can have a discussion. Just then. go with poultry. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And then um, I want to take a minute to also um, let everybody know um, we have a call or a show scheduled for December 16th. Um, and this is going to be a special new, new thing. I've never done this before, but the private law library, what is they called nowadays? Pillip, Plip, um, private law library and information professionals, SIS. Uh, board is going to be hosting a uh, town hall. Um, so we're going to start out, you know, if Emily and Frank can make it again um, to join us with some, some history and some government update. And then we're going to turn our attention to um, um, issues uh, surrounding uh, or of interest to private law libraries. 
So please, you know, feel free to join us and call in uh, with some questions. Um, so that's December 16th. And we're going to continue um, into the new year uh, doing this on the more or less the third Friday of um, the month, each month. If you have any ideas, uh, contributions you'd like to make, let me know. But thanks again to our panelists, uh, James Turk, uh, for joining us, and Kyle, uh, always good to talk to you. I can I just imagine while I'm talking to you with a, that you've got a single malt in your hand. <laughs> Within the next five minutes, most likely. <laughs> okay. Um, Roger Skalbeck, is always good to spend some time with you and Ken um, Hirsch. Thanks very much. And Thank you. Uh, Emily, Thank you. Emily, thanks for, uh, for joining us. It was uh, a lot of fun. And Frank, thanks so much thanks. for your uh, essay. Um, my, my pleasure. I, pre- I enjoyed it. Enjoyed yeah. doing it. I, you were able to get through it all without once mentioning um, the <laughs> theme of the, of the new century. I hope we're referring to the uh, not referring to the Northern California team, are we? Of course, we've won three times already <laughs> in this century. I, that's unprecedented. And uh, um, I try yeah. not to say that. I try to focus on down south. <laughs> the, northern, what can I tell you? the Northern California team. Oh, you were such a <laughs> Southern California guy. All right. Well, so thank you very much, everybody, for joining us. And, um, yes, this is being recorded. You'll be able to get to it from the archive on Blog Talk Radio and iTunes, although every time I think about somebody listening uh, you know, to me while you're working out or walking the dog, <laughs> it kind of makes me skin crawl. But um, enjoy. It was a pleasure spending time with you all. And... Um, I don't have any clever way of signing off, but um, I'm waving. You can do the, oh, Harry, do the Harry Carey and uh, sing the uh, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Take Me Out to the Ball Game. It's after the season. So, all right. We've got uh, five seconds left until we close. So, um, why don't we all say, say goodbye? Happy Thursday Day. Stay open, whatever state you're in, and happy Turkey Day. Hey, there you go. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye.